Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I'm wondering if you've ever had a moment in your life in which you changed course very rapidly, where you dropped everything and chose a different path, abandoned your routine and changed course to such a degree that people around you would have thought that you were a little crazy for doing it. Uh, Many of us have had at least a moment or two like that, sometimes because of something great that happens and other times because of some really rough emergency. Uh, Perhaps, you know, you had a child who struggled to learn for many years and reading was such a chore for them and uh, a burden that they couldn't seem to bear, but eventually they were able to master the craft and then their, their elementary school teacher wanted them to read a poem in front of the whole school at some assembly. What would you do as a parent? You would cancel anything you had that day and you would go to hear your son or your daughter speak. Uh, and sometimes this happens, of course, quite negatively. Your teenager calls you and says, I was just in an accident. They're taking me now to the hospital. I'm in an ambulance. What, you, what would you say? I'm very sorry, but I'm watching an old episode of Friends. Um, <laughs> no, in fact, you would say, what hospital? Are you okay? Etc. I'll be there no matter what. And you would show up. And for, for others, it's when you fall madly in love, you know, you had a whole plan for grad school, by the way. You were going to go to Boston College, and it was going to be great, and you liked the weather in New England, and the falls are very beautiful there, but you fell in love with somebody from Texas, you know, the hottest place on earth, um, and you fell in love to such a degree that you thought, well, since they can't move here right now, I'm going to move to Texas because love made me change my plans. So many people in this room have been thwarted. Your ambitions have been thwarted because of falling in love. It's just, it's not good for business, you know, not good for business and yet good for life. But, and then, you know, there are other tragedies that, are, that befall you, that people come to you. They interrupt their plans for your sake, you know. Monique and I will never forget that uh, when we experienced early on in our marriage a, a miscarriage, and many people in this room have, and it's incredibly uh, painful, and people say agonizingly stupid things to you when you have a miscarriage because they're trying to help, but it makes it worse. But, but, um, I, but somebody in this room, a professor, uh, called off their classes that day so that they could rush to the hospital and just sit with us and not try to fix it, but just sit there in pain with us. Meant the world, still means the world. Somebody changed their course. Well, uh, that's what happens in the calling of these disciples. Jesus plods along the beach, walks the docks, and finds these men who are just doing their jobs and offers them an invitation, and they say, okay. And everything changed. So many things changed. And if I were to summarize what happened to them and what happens to us when we become disciples, just like they became disciples, I could describe discipleship, I suppose, in these two descriptors. Um, Disciples are leavers and followers. We are leavers and we are followers because the text says, and immediately they left their nets 
and followed him. So I want to talk about being a lever and a follower tonight. The context is important, and a whole sermon series could be preached on the context, but Jesus at the beginning of our passage alerts people that the time for the kingdom of God is here. It's all ready, and he is now prepared to say what he has to say and to um, construct the empire of God in the world. He's ready. Uh, And what is the first thing that Jesus does for his new empire? I mean, think about that. He's saying, what I'm doing and saying and embodying is the great change we've all been hungering for and which everybody is deeply hungering for, that God would come in and fix the place and God would redeem and God would solve our problems. And, and how does he begin this great empire? He, he, he hangs out at the docks and chooses some people that catch fish. That's a little surprising. He doesn't hire a PR consultant and he doesn't, you know, train a militia or assassins to take down Pontius Pilate. He has no plans and has never had plans to turn Rome into a theocracy. Like, nothing like that. It's actually somewhat um, dull by comparison. He goes down to the docks and he hunts after fishermen. And what is the response after he offers the invitation, come and follow me? Um, people become leavers and followers. So, first... Leavers. This is verse 18 again. And immediately they left their nets. And immediately they left their nets. I think that's the simplest phrase ever and endlessly profound what these men did at that moment. It's endlessly profound because Simon and Andrew and later James and John were fishermen by trade. You know, this is not a hobby like your Uncle Hank who hangs out at the lake with the beer and a fishing pole. Um, This is not like that. These are not people that fish with string and a worm. These are people that are very well trained in a craft. They own boats. They take those boats into the Sea of Galilee. They uh, send out sprawling nets that are, you know, 25 feet wide, and they collect as many fish as they can, getting scores of fish, and then they sell them at, at the market to make a profit. So these are professional tradesmen. These are fishermen. And the net is really symbolic of their labor. The net, without the net, they can't work. Without the net, they'll never catch enough fish to be legitimate tradesmen fishermen. And so they, the net that they let go of represents so many things. It not only represents their trade in general, uh, it represents their financial security. That's what the net is. That's their financial security. That's why they have to mend them at the end of the day to make sure they're okay and can catch fish the next day. The next day. It's financial security for themselves and their families, right? That's how they provide a livelihood and a predictable one at that. But it's also a a, a gift to society as a whole because they're providing something that's um, necessary. You know, they're not making fidget spinners, which are wonderful, but not necessary. You don't really need one. You don't need them at all anymore. They were only popular eight years ago for a week, but I decided to mention it for some reason. Um, Instead, they're providing people with food that they need to survive, right? It's a fishing community. They need somebody to fish the fish so that they can eat. Well, you provide um, stability for society, financial security and stability. That's what the nets represent. Also, the nets represent something like familial bonds, bonds with your family, because fishing was a family business. You know, in the first century, 
you kind of, you grew up with your family who trained you in a particular craft, and that's just what they, you did. You didn't have career counselors who would give you a future in the graphic arts. Like, that just didn't happen. And say so you, you didn't have to pursue your passion. Nobody thought of it that way. They're like, how do I not die next week? Like, that was more the ambition. How do we not starve? Um, and so what you did was you apprenticed yourself, likely under, likely, most likely under your father, and you would train up in the family business. And that's what happened here, because they have a father who was named in the text. His name is Zebedee, right? Zebedee is the fisherman, and evidently he's just holding the nets at the end of the day as his two sons walk away from the family business. And so to leave your nets meant leaving your trade, leaving your financial security, and leaving, in many cases, your familial bonds. And in the first century, there was nothing more important than your, than your blood kinship. And these men were so caught up in the invitation, come and follow me, that they left the nets behind. Uh, that, mean, that meant leaving your life behind, leaving everything you knew, leaving your world behind. And when God acts, it is quite common that people leave. They leave what they know. This happens in the Old Testament quite a bit. When God acts, he creates a new community of leavers. It happens with Abraham, right, who was a moon worshiper living in Iraq. And God calls him out and says, you need to leave. This happens with Lot in the city of Sodom. It happens with Israel, who is locked in Egypt. Later in the New Testament, it happens with the Magi, who are somewhere in the Middle East, maybe near Babylonia, you know, far away, and all of a sudden, they get a call to come uh, to Jerusalem and leave what they know. And the disciples are now called to leave, to leave their nets. Now, it is quite true, not every New Testament disciple of Jesus is called to leave a career. Cornelius, the centurion, after he becomes a Christian, stays a centurion. Lydia, she makes clothes, nice purpley clothes. She's called as a, to be a Christian, she becomes a Christian, she still makes purpley clothes. And yet, and yet, I think there's a principle at play in this text, meaning or indicating something like every disciple of Jesus will certainly leave certain comforts behind, even if it isn't career. You're going to lose something. You're going to abandon something. Something will be taken away from you that you regard as comforting and even precious. Uh, you know, we're going to have to give some of our money away because it's in the New Testament. It's what we do. We learn how to be generous with people in need and with the church. We're going to give some of our time away. That's what happens when you pray, when you read the scriptures, when you study, when you attend worship. Do you know what you could be doing right now if you weren't here? You could be enjoying uh, a, a, a cigarette while reading the New York Times at home. You could do that, but you didn't want the New York Times. You wanted to be in church, but you gave up your cigarette time. Many of you are hungering for it even now. Um, cultural acceptance. You want to be connected and bonded to Jesus? Say sayonara to cultural preference and respect. Maybe in the 1950s, like, that was really in. It's just not in anymore. You've got to kiss that one goodbye. Wah, wah. Um, what about familial or friendly bonds? I mean, some people will respect you if you're religious, but that's waning now. A lot of people, even close friends and family, will think you're a little daft believing in some Bronze Age superstition, to quote Christopher Hitchens. Um, and some people, when you love 
Christ more, they will love you less because they don't get it and they, they're deeply unsettled by that kind of commitment. I, I think we have to be prepared to lose, to lose some things that give us comfort, to lose some things that give us stability, to leave our nets, if you will. <clears throat> and, and these disciples had the pluck and the courage in that moment to drop their nets and say yes to an open future in which they did not know the outcome. And that's pretty remarkable. <clears throat> but sometimes this passage is preached in such a way that it says, are you willing to make such a radical step for Jesus? Sort of a, a, a challenge to lay before people because the disciples laid it all on the line. Are you willing to lay it all on the line? Here's the thing. They didn't really lay it all on the line. Yes, they dropped their nets. Yes, that was hugely important. But the disciples clung to all sorts of weird things and brought them into their continual discipleship and relationship with Jesus. Lots of things. Thomas clung to his doubts. Peter clung to his militancy. James and John clung to their ambition. Nevertheless, Jesus worked with them step by step as they learned to let more and more go. But they didn't lose everything all at once. It was, in fact, as the New Testament carries on, gradual. And we know that because of the biblical narrative. So if you're thinking to yourself tonight, look, I haven't left a whole lot. I've not been so radical. I haven't in involved myself in reckless abandon for the cause. You're not alone. They learned as they went to. And they learned to le let things go. But the good news of the gospel is you have time to learn. You have time to learn in the school of Jesus how to let things go. So he's not done with you yet. So that's about leaving, and being a disciple always involves leaving, abandoning. It involves deconstruction. It involves detachment. It also involves following, because verse 18 says, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. A follower, quite literally, is someone who walks behind another person. A follower is never in the front of the line. Now, that little bit of wisdom, that pearl that I just gave you, runs contrary to uh, most human wisdom in terms of ascendancy. It goes against the uh, climbing the Darwinian pyramid of greatness, uh, and it also um, goes against all college admission essays. Um, Right? Because to say I'm a Christian, therefore I'm not chiefly defined by being a leader, but by being a follower, is just not in vogue. It's just not in vogue because if you have to write these stupid essays, you have to say how many clubs you've been involved in and how you're really the president or the vice president, but you hope to be the president of the club. Um, you're great at managing people, at organizing people, meaning controlling people, that you're really into that. Um, and, and here's what I want to say. That's neat. I mean, it's neat that you like that. It's really great. Um, but in Christianity, that always has to be way down the list. Your first defining feature as a Christian is not your leadership capacities. It's that you're a follower of somebody who's a better leader than you. By the way, that's tremendously relieving. Isn't it nice you don't have to define all your terms and be in charge of everything and everyone else in your life? It's so great that you have somebody who is doing that 
for you and for the kingdom of God, who's better at it. It's so wonderful to have a capable Christ that you can simply get behind and say, I don't have to define everything. I don't have to lord my authority over everyone. Somebody else is doing that who is far more capable and merciful than myself. And so we are chiefly defined as followers, and that is foundational to our identity. Now the question has to be asked, what does it mean to follow a rabbi within the first century especially? Because the rabbinic model of education differed rather significantly from our own graduate or PhD programs today. Most PhD programs are about honing uh, some cerebral craft, right? Knowing a subject really well and being able to um, posit certain arguments and defend them well. Nothing wrong with that and a lot right with it. But education from in the rabbinic tradition, at least in, in the first century, was far more holistic. It involved not only uh, intellectualizing certain things and memorizing teachings of a rabbi, but perceiving the world as your rabbi perceived the world. Having the sensibilities and sensitivities of your rabbi, developing the feelings of your rabbi, spending um, time with your rabbi and noticing how your rabbi spends time, developing the rhythms of the rabbi um, and, and the reactions of the rabbi. In other words, it's personality mirroring. You see something admirable in this person who is your leader, and you as a follower seek to emulate, insofar as you're able, the qualities and character that you see before you. Uh, to be like your rabbi. You know, the, the, the Mishnah, um, which is a collection of originally um, oral traditions written down uh, over many centuries, has a beautiful line about the students of a rabbi. It says something to the effect that it is blessed to be covered uh, by the dust of your rabbi. What did that mean? That you were sitting down at your rabbi's feet in the dust, but you were close to him and wanted to listen. But also you were walking behind your rabbi, and as his sandals kicked up, dust would get on you because you were close. There's a proximity, a bond that you're sharing, that you're being holistically informed and affected by the genius of your rabbi in all sorts of ways. You're that close. Um, and so Jesus, the rabbi that wants these close uh, followers, gives these first gentlemen a, one specific line about their future task as part of his discipling vision for them. He says, you will now be known as fishers of people, fishers of men. You can keep the fisher part, but I'm changing what you fish for. Before, you were extremely into halibut and trout, and that was good for the time being, but now that's about to change. I need you to catch people and bring them into the kingdom of God. Now, there's nothing wrong with catching trout and halibut. It's really grand, uh, but it's not ultimate. It's not eternal, because as great as those things are, people matter more. Uh, and people are made of internal, excuse me, eternal ingredients. And God wants his image bearers back. So he sends people out, emissaries out into the world to gather them together so they don't get lost. He wants his kids back. And so that's the task put before these apostles is to fish for people. Um, now, I, I just want to underscore how beautiful that is. 
that God is here in Christ changing their vocation. Because, you know, there's, there's something more to existence than merely existing. There's something more to existence than paying your rent and griping about how much your mortgage is and complaining about taxes and changing the oil in your car and making or reheating lasagna. All of those things have value. They're all great, but there's something even more going on in the world, and that is this, destiny, eternal destiny, that God actually has an evangelistic cause within the world to bring people toward himself, to catch other human beings so that they don't get lost, uh, to create a new empire of light in which you can be a member and you can be a fisher for people. And that, friends, is a really wonderful calling. And so he calls them into that new dignified position. Now, it is quite true that in a real sense, this original call to the first disciples is unique. They were to quit their jobs and become itinerant preachers of the gospel. Not every Christian, very obviously from the biblical record, is called to this. In fact, not every Christian is called to be an evangelist in the strict vocational sense. Because in Ephesians 4, Paul writes, some he has given to be evangelists. And the word some in Greek means some. Um, meaning not everyone is an evangelist, somebody trained to communicate the gospel with, with great power and clarity. That's an office within the church, not a universal call that people need to feel guilty about because they're not doing it well enough. Not everybody's called to be an evangelist. Um, but it is also true that all Christians are involved in some aspect of catching people, some aspect of being fishers of men. What do I mean? Well, you may not be an evangelist per se, but some are called to pray and intercede for the mission of God in the world. Some are called to financially, um, be, to be financially generous, audaciously so, for the mission and ministry of the church. Some are called to encourage people to go into ministry or to encourage those who are in mission work. Some are called to train and equip others for mission. Um, some are called to create friendly bridges to the outside world for the sake of mission. And yes, some are called to quit their jobs and involve themselves in full-time ministry and mission work. But all of us are on the same boat, contributing to the same fishing endeavor. And so you, with all of your current problems, with your limitations, with your present vocation, can utilize the gifts you have in such a way that it gives your whole life a new dignity and destiny. There's something of rich eternal purpose in you. Or to quote the Broadway show, The Producers, there, there's more to you than you. There's more to you than just the day-in, day-out grind when you offer the day-in, day-out grind for the purposes of God and his evangelistic kingdom endeavor. Jesus wants you to be part of that. So that's something about leaving and something about following as fishers of men. And I'd like to end with a word about how this passage descends down the corridors of time and addresses us right now tonight. Because the call of discipleship, the follow me call, echoes forth into this moment because Jesus calls you. Jesus doesn't just plod along Middle Eastern beaches. He's in Grove City. And he says to you tonight, I choose you.
I want you. Come and follow me. You know, what made these disciples leave so much? Drop their nets and immediately follow. What made them crazy like that? What made them leavers and followers? What compelled them to do something risky and seemingly unseemly? One answer, I think it's the answer deep down, love. Love makes people do wondrously crazy things. Love pursued Peter and Andrew, James and John in the midst of their dulling careers. Love sought after them first. They were wanted and chosen by Harvard before they even applied to Harvard. You know, the typical first century rabbi did not go out scouting for students. No, they had aspirational pupils apply for a, a place at the rabbinic school. And they'd be accepted only if they were the cream of the crop and had proven themselves completely worthy and trustworthy for the cause. That's not the model that we get in Jesus. He gets low. He walks down to the docks where nobody else was walking to. He wants the middle-class, anonymous faces that we'd easily overlook because they seem all too overlookable. He wants people who don't have all the right answers, who don't have good comebacks and arguments, who have a million confusing qualities and intractable problems. He adores them, he wants them, he seeks out them, and he adores you and wants you and seeks after you. That's what love is. That's what love does. It's the hound of heaven. It's the one who pursues, who loves us into loveliness, who comes to us preemptively and asks us to follow him. He finds us wherever we are, wherever we hide, and gives us the noblest of invitations. It's as if he's saying to us, I want you to follow me. And yes, I know there are plenty other rabbinic voices and schools out there. Lots of so-called rabbis want your attention. Lots of schools of thought want to dominate in your skulls and in your souls. Lots of schools, right? There's the... Um, there's the affirmation school that says everything about you is wonderful almost all the time. There's the negating school, which is everything about you is terrible all the time, forever and ever, a world without end. Devote yourself to hating yourself. There's the school of your job is the only thing that ultimately matters because it proves something to your dad who is dead. Um, right? A lot of people do that. They engage in work all the time and they work themselves to death to, uh, to impress somebody who's living in their head. Uh, there's the school of um, technology. As long as you're up on tech and you have a great social media presence where you can curate an image of yourself for the world to see and appreciate, then you're acceptable. But there are all these schools that want to master you, all of these interests, all of these um, exploitative places and teachers that want you. And Jesus invades that world and says, um, all of them are going to offer burdens that crush you. I want to offer you life and life more abundant. I want to offer you a new shot to get things right. I want to offer you complete exoneration and forgiveness. I want to offer you eternal life. Follow me. You're going to get all of that. Well, 
Jesus has called you into that empire of light, into this kingdom. Jesus has walked into this church for you today. And when we are approached like that and loved like that, pursued like that, we are willing to drop many, many things. Uh, a little story. Uh, so when I was in high school, I was socially petrified. I mean, maybe you think that I'm still a little awkward now. You didn't know me then. It was much, much worse. Um, but I, I, there was something that really helped heal me. I was in the, out, the, the lower, you know, caste. I was an untouchable. But I would, um, in fact, I found social engagement so difficult that I never ate lunch in high school. I just went to the art room and, and drew things by myself. Um, but because I was interested in art, I, I, I was noticed by some people that were regarded in high school as very important. So in high school, you have two groups of really popular people, right? You have the mean popular people who are unappeasable and the nice popular people. Well, the nice popular people noticed that I liked art and they said, look, we need to, we're making a, a homecoming float for our senior class and the theme is Aladdin, <laughs> and we're making a genie, but we need somebody to make the blue head of the genie out of chicken wire and paper mache. Would you do this? Come follow me. No, would you do this? And I said, yes, I will do it. I don't even know why I said yes. I think I was so touched that anybody knew I was alive that I said yes. So I made this genie head um, out, of those in, out of those things. And I think it looked like a misshapen sack of blue potatoes. By the time it was done, it was not terribly impressive, not my best work. But what it did, that little invitation from them, enveloped me in a whole new world where people were interested in me and kind to me, and they wanted to know about my life and my interests and my talents. And, and they helped me come out of my shell where I was then able, for the first time in my life, to connect with my peers. It was incredibly healing and restorative and caused me to approach life in an open way, in a new way, I think in a more godly way, because I was chased down by love in some way. Well, that is a very little story that exemplifies a bigger point, that Jesus wants you, that you're wanted, that you're chosen, that he says, come and follow me, and I hope you'll say yes. I hope you'll say yes, because I, I think it's the most wondrously freeing thing you could ever do with your life is to be a disciple of Jesus. Um, well, the love that calls, the love that walked upon Galilean docks has walked into this room, and he tells you you can leave things behind. It will be okay, and you can follow. It'll be okay. In fact, more than okay, for you are loved so, so much, even unto death. Amen. Oh,